0: Museums are really theatres of political power, says Maya Nuku. She's the curator of Oceania at one of the biggest such theatres, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Nuku, who is of Nai Thai and English descent, has created a home for Māori and Pacific Island peoples and artists in the Big Apple. And she returns to Aotearoa regularly. She was recently here to receive the 2023 Kia World Class New Zealand Supreme Award. Uh, Maya's hosting at the Met has also been inspired by her rather unusual upbringing. I started by asking Maya about some remarkable parents.
1: Sure, yeah, i just been on the phone with them this morning. They are Jeffrey Jessup and Esther Mio Kerr Jessup. And so my mother went to London on the Rangitoto uh, in 1958. Oh, she yes. travelled by boat, yeah, and met a lot of people, other New Zealanders who were travelling overseas and some of them were Maori and others, Pākehā, they were going to become teachers and work uh, and experience life over in the UK and Europe and they kept in touch uh, when they got to London and they had a very kind of informal network uh, of friendships and they used to go in those days to the New Zealand house to get the news from home and read letters and (laughs) They had a, they used to gather at my mum and my auntie's flat in Putney, and it became known as Putney Path. Yes. And invariably, you know, the guitar would come out, and they would have sing songs and parties and sing there. And they they began to do a lot of work with the uh, High Commission, uh, quite informally in those days, yes. just um, doing all sorts of work, raising the profile of New Zealand over in in England. And you know, they worked with. Uh, Uh, Apple and Pear Board and New Zealand Lamb. I remember she went out with a group to Heathrow Airport when Air New Zealand were launching a new um, set of planes, you know, for the flights into London. So they had a whole <laughs> range of work that they were doing and so it became more formalised over the years. It was the London Maori Club for many years yes. and then in later times I think someone referred to them in, in the corridor as Yahemi de Widamu who referred to them as Ngāti Ranana and so that kind of stuck and it is an incredible community of Maori who and, and, and Pākehā and, and non-New Zealanders actually who are just interested in the culture and learning more and they gather every Wednesday night at the New Zealand High Commission and and welcome people yeah. in. They do, yeah.
0: re- do do remarkable work. That must have been something quite extraordinary to grow up around. Yeah. Yes, I
1: I, I do feel like I was really exposed to uh, Maori culture over there in you know twelve thousand miles away from here. It was uh, very anchoring to be listening. I guess I was always figuring out that's Taha Maori, you know that Maori side of myself. Um, and we did host uh, not only. At the High Commission, but also they're great—they're consummate consummate hosts, you know, and great entertainers. And so my mother and father would host people for dinners, and we would, you know, from everything from, you know, bishops and uh, all blacks and museum curators and anthropologists who were coming to research the museum collections in the UK. Uh, New Zealand war veterans were coming over to go across to. The continent uh, yeah. to visit graves. So you know there was a very r- a large range of people who came through our house in Richmond, and so yeah, I think I was very exposed, listening to, if I it or being, you know, involved in those poor hitty. Yeah, it it, it was a great way to uh, immerse myself. I think in the in the culture and and understand that side of myself, and I, I guess I found my way into museum work. Uh, because I felt comfortable, you know, on, on that kind of threshold yeah. between both worlds in a way, which some of us are, are born with, and so we, in figuring it out, we navigate those those two worlds. And museum work is very much on that threshold and on that border.
0: And and your mum is naitai, or your Naita, your iwi, the, I think, uh, right. east coast of Whakatane, looking out there on, 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 um, on the island. Do you get back
1: often? I've just been down to Torere, and our Fenua down there on the coast last oh. week. So it's been a while due to the pandemic that you know I haven't been back. And so the first thing I wanted to do when I got here three weeks ago was just to get across to Tauranga to see some of my aunties and uncles and then down to the coast, because that's where I really feel like I've landed. And wow. those hills and that uh, very... We have a beautiful uh, piece of land with the, near the beach with old Pudiri and Pudukawa trees and the Kiriru were there <laughs> and it was just, you know, I just feel very hugged and held by that those mountains in that space and yes, it, it looks out onto Fakari, White Island, so yes. I always find that very grounding and I don't really feel like I've cleared customs to, until I get there.
0: Well, well, you've taken your mother's name, I presume Nuku is is your mother's name? No, that's no? not actually, oh. yeah.
1: I share that name with my son, <laughs> Tiaunahi, oh. um but uh the my son's father is george nuku Ah, uh, the artist. So we, we did a lot of projects together. Oh, wonderful, years! Like in 2006. And, and our, we have, you know, I, I raised our beautiful child in, in New York, yeah. Oh, oh I,
0: should, I should have thought. Well, gosh, this is, these webs of connections are interesting there, looking out across um, the island over the Pacific. And, and there you are in New York. We've now got direct flights there. But So you've mm. been at the Met since 2014. And it, it strikes me that your work in hosting people there is not so different from your mother's. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Some <laughs> people have pointed that out to me and I, I didn't notice myself that that's what I was doing. I think I <laughs> wanted to create community for myself in New York and, and for my son, Tiau Nihi, and there is a small community of Maori there, so we do meet. And it was very instinctive for me when I first got to the museum to host people and people, I think also when I got there, felt like they had a, an entry point into that place and so they were coming to New York and I was inviting them to come in and we would do these quite impromptu often events in the galleries and I realized you know hosting people in those galleries was so important to me just to kind of open up and create that access for artists and cultural practitioners from right across the Pacific and it, it informed my curatorial practice in a way that I had I wasn't really aware of, but over time I kind of realised, oh, the galleries are actually a piece of the Moana, you know, a piece of the islands kind of are reactivated and that those galleries become, you know, like an island in New York for Pacific people, Maori and Pacific people, when they come through. And so it started helping me think about the agency of the artworks and the taonga in the collection and how they were really designed to be agents for
0: relationships. So agents rather than objects in a way... Yeah,
1: Yeah, and and with that idea of subjectivity, you know, that instead of objects, if if artworks have agency, then they are subjects, they do have histories, they have biographies, you know, they make their way into museums in all sorts of fascinating, complicated, contentious ways. And I think the work is really to open up those histories and have people understand the complexity. You know, we're living in a world which does want to reduce these discussions to quite binary, good and bad, Uh, narratives and I think we really lose out on a lot of the richness of those histories and we we really need to do justice to the complexity and the nuance um, so that we can really understand ourselves and how we were centuries ago and the collection is a really an archive of indigenous knowledge in that sense so we're never uh, we never know everything about the past and we never know everything about the Tonga, you know, really spending time with the collections and inviting people in to research and just embrace being with them, you know, to encounter them in the 21st century teaches us so much about where we are now and where, where we came from. Yeah. And, and that informs where we go in the future. So I, I'm really an advocate for the potential of museums as dynamic spaces. You know, I really don't think they're static and dusty old places. And if they are, then the institution yeah. needs to evolve it's a very, so that they're not. It's you
0: know? a very exciting time, isn't it? There's a lot happening in the word decolonisation in terms of how it applies to it. And, mm. and, and I think I've almost heard, you know, what you're doing there is almost providing a community centre for Pacific artists a, a home there. But it does strike me. I've just been to the Met in New York and, you know, it to some people, it must seem almost like the colonial death star that you're going <laughs> to—that huge, imposing building, mm. um, that that architecture, and you know the loot in there from around the world. In a sense, it it must be quite intimidating initially. So to be able to break that down for people to feel welcome in there is quite extraordinary.
1: Yeah, and I think the architecture of institutions it is so uh, imposing, as as you say, that the, I mean, it's really the the canon of art and what has had the you know had the focus and attention of of people has been European and you know Western art and so the architecture in a way that you know that that canon of art is inscribed into the architecture of the building itself and so it is a challenge you know opening up to democratize that space and those power structures and but I you know the museum is very and and our leadership is very engaged with you know, moving forward and accommodating newer histories and expanding the parameters of what art is and how we think about art. And so, so, yeah, it's an exciting time to be in museums and I think, really, oceanic art is having its moment and there's been a, you know, build-up of momentum from before my time, obviously, but, you know, from 2006, Pacific Encounters was a show that I was involved with which uh, brought together... UK institutions of collections of Pacific art and then from there we've had a lot of different exhibitions over in Europe and then, you know, the Royal Academy show in Oceania. So, you know, people are interested. What's so fascinating, you know, people are like, where's this art been? They haven't seen it. It's it's so engaging and compelling and it's really quite unfamiliar to many people who, who are not from the Pacific and so... You know, that that's exciting.
0: Well, I'll come back to that again um, soon because you, in a year's time or so, you're going to be opening your whole new wing, which is very exciting. But just on the, the, that area of, of change, I mean, I've was in, um, i just been in the United States and I went to a small museum, for example, the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbour, in Maine, um, where the Wabanaki people, are, they, they have a statement very early as you come into the museum that they've essentially been given the museum to curate their own work, essentially to choose what is in there and i was so impressed by that decolonization and how things have changed um it's an exciting time but it must be an interesting negotiation within such a huge organization or institution as the met
1: yes the the, the met is really in a sense you know lots it sometimes it's lo, you know operates a bit like lots of different museums under one roof so that's the challenge in a sense there are different disciplinary lenses that people apply to the arts. So we have archaeologists, we have anthropologists and art historians. And so that's quite fascinating, you know, how the scholarship is really informing uh, care and curatorial practice for the collections. But I do feel that, um, you know, within that overarching institutional framework, there is capacity for us to work with our own collections in the way that we think is appropriate, and there's support for that. So that's very encouraging. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting how these smaller museums and cultural centers are really flourishing across not only America and Turtle Island you know with indigenous communities there but also in the Pacific and there's yeah. definitely that's definitely going to be gathering more more momentum as communities gear up and gain capacity for caring for specific artworks that you know they would like to go home so i think yeah there's going to be a lot of interesting Dialogues and debates and discussions about that, and that's, that's all good. You know, well, that's what the arts, you know, it demands that, and so we must honour that. There are certainly ambassadorial roles for art in parts of the world away from here, but then there are also key works where perhaps it is appropriate, you know, that communities uh, steward those collections. Yeah, because the interesting
0: there, so. tension there, isn't there? You've gotten mm-hmm. a sense of place where, where these cultures can feel proud that they're showing their work to a, to a wider world Um, because it is such a global stage, but at the same time there is that repatriation or the need for things to come back. I mean, there must be things in the collection that you have to look after. You feel kind of, it's a little uneasy having to look after it.
1: I mean, the thing that I, you know, check in with myself is to have these dialogues, you know, to keep talking to the communities. I look after, you know, such a wide range of um, art from across the Pacific. It really is a very diverse collection. Uh, Something like 338 cultures. Uh, are represented in the oceanic collections in New York. So, a lot of different conversations with different com- communities, and that can become very granular um, in terms yeah. of different Aboriginal communities, for example, in Australia, or different uh, communities in the Solomon Islands or Vanuatu. You know, so you're really the objective is to get down to a very granular level, so you can really build a relationship with communities and or the cultural centre that kind of represents them. Sometimes it's not hundred percent clear, you know, where something would go or return to. So those are the kinds of conversations you have to, you know, be yeah. having and in in yeah. But what what's great is that, that those di- that dialogue and those debates are what's very powerful. You know, it ends up strengthening relationships and both sides learn a lot about each other. And so at some point you kind of rise up and think, well, in a macro perspective, the bringing together of people through the collection is actually what's happening in the same way that yeah. Fijian chiefs or Maori chiefs, you know, exchanged Tonga to cement alliances. And, and it's the relationships that have always mattered. So, you know, between and amongst indigenous Pacific peoples, for example, but now those conversations will happen across different cultural boundaries. And so... Yeah.
0: That's the,
1: that's the potential, I think, yeah, just you've, to you've keep got, having those conversations. You've got a yeah.
0: remarkable perspective there, haven't you, in terms of looking across all of those cultures of Oceania. I know in New Zealand we have a limited perspective. Even when I go to Melbourne, I can see a mm. far wider engagement with the full Pacific and its cultures. That's kind of remarkable. I'm speaking to Maya Nuku, who's the creator of Oceanic Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Just going back, I mean, you started at the Met, I think, in 2014. Mm. I think 30 years before that, we have to remember Te Māori um, as this incredible moment at, at the Metropolitan Museum and, and it caused a huge change in our own cultural policies here in terms of Indigenous or Māori-led initiatives and, and change. I wondered, what what was left of the, the Te Māori legacy when you arrived at the museum? Uh,
1: absolutely, you know, it was such a landmark exhibition and I was very mindful of that legacy when I, you know, accepted the role and felt, you know, I could have been quite paralysed by that uh, (laughs) legacy. And so it was great to have the support of the Te Māori Legacy Trust uh, and conversations with Arapata Hakiwai, who's the Kaihotu Māori for Te Papa Togarewa. And, you know, and we had a conversation last week actually about how we can move um, that forward and, and recall the, Um, 40th anniversary of Te Māori which is of course next year and so we're discussing how we might commemorate that in the museum when we reopen our galleries because I'm very invested in talking about that exhibition and reviving the institutional memory of that show Um, and so as you say I was very interested when I got to the museum uh, what the memory point of that show was And, and many people actually did come up to me uh, patrons and other people who'd been at that dawn uh, service the Fakawatia, September the 10th 1984 with those de- delegation and those comarts were gathered on the front steps of the Met uh, and you know the traffic stopped um, and it was a very memorable occasion for a lot of people you know the museum was very agile in responding to that demand really by Maori of how they wanted to be represented and I've written about this you know reflecting about the the impact of that show, which I think still has ripple effects across the Pacific today because in that cultural renaissance and that flowering that happened as a result of the standout success of Te Maori, not only in New York but at the three following venues and then when it came home to Aotearoa as Te Amai, of course, you know almost a quarter of the population of New Zealand turned out to see <laughs> those taonga, yeah. um, you know, across the four venues here. And they had, you know, Tiaho Tapu was the uh, the kakahu, the, the textiles and cloaks show that happened alongside because it hadn't omitted, actually, the work of women and the weavers. Uh, you know, I, I think um, this will be a great opportunity next year to, mm. you know, to reflect on that uh, more solidly. That was led by by Maori, you know, mm. who really decided what Tonga would come across to the States in the first place. And it was Dame Teatari Rangikahu, the Maori queen, who supported the show and advocated for Uinuku to lead the Tainui uh, tribal deity, to lead that show across, you know, to lead the Tonga overseas. And once she was on board, a lot of the other iwi uh, supported it. And so it was always led by... Ma- you know, it wasn't clear that those taonga would leave Aotearoa for that show. Um, so that kind of agency, you know that the way that they led that is yeah. just so something that you know we want to get back to now, and so you know that's that was such a an important moment and so yeah, I think we need to kind of build on that and and show how we're we're able to continue to allow that kind of indigenous um sovereignty and advocacy to take place in the museum yeah. well
0: you've got this amazing you know as you say you've got this uh, opportunity or this moment that's occurring for you what in about a year's time is it with the reopening of the Michael C. Rockefeller Wing?
1: That's right in 2025 we'll be reopening and that's um, you know the three collections that are represented in the Michael C. Rockefeller Wing and each of those collections will actually be understood in it in their own capacity so we're actually Coming, uh, we've moved away from this overarching rubric of the arts of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas. Okay. And it will be the arts of Oceania in the Michael Rockefeller wig that you encounter. So that was something we discussed, and with our advisors from the different regions of the cultures and art that we represent, so we had conversations about what might be appropriate. And we felt strongly that each of those collections has moved on in such a way over the course of the last 40 years since the collection of Nelson Rockefeller came into the museum as a coherent unit. And so that was when the wing was built. Um, But, you know, it was then kind of non-Western art and that was the framing it needed to have in order to kind of insert itself into the rest of the collections at the Met. And they, you know, we do acknowledge that as the kind of moment that the museum became, the collections at the Met became truly encyclopedic. But now in 2023 and 25, you know, when we reopen, it's appropriate that we we don't lump those three huge <laughs> masses and, and collections together. You know, the scholarship, the art history, the, the practice has all moved forward so much. And so we have to address... Things in a more
0: granular way. The, the, than we Ro- did then. the Rockefeller legacy, I'm quite interested in how that collection came together. I believe there's a story of an abandoned catamaran in, in, in Oceania. Mm. What, what's, the, what's the story of how the collection began?
1: So, Nelson Rockefeller was a strong advocate of art from the Pacific Islands, from the ancient Americas, and indeed Sub Saharan Africa. Right. And he was very interested in the Met. You know, opening, expanding its um, collections to include art from those regions, and he was advocating for that as early as the th- 1930s. Uh, but uh, you know, the appetite of the trustees and director at that time, you know, was was not aligned with that, and so he went away and created his own museum, um, which was called the Museum of Indigenous Art, and then actually changed its name to the Museum of Primitive Art, and. That was, uh, his mother was Abby Aldridge Rockefeller, who was one of the three women who founded the Museum of Modern Art. Ah. So there's a kind of connection there. Um, mm. Robert Goldwater, who was one of the, um, he worked with René uh with Nelson Rockefeller to cre- create the collection. Um, so it was very much a collection that was, you know, they were trying to build a kind of comprehensive collection But interestingly, you know, Robert Goldwater's uh, wife was Louise Bourgeois. So you can see in those days there was much more of a kind of interaction between, you know, art and was kind of become, you know, was kind of ethnography and and anthropology, you know. So those lines were quite blurred in those days, actually. And it's interesting to hear, to to figure out in a museum installation how you, you know, how you honour those distinct kinds of gallery displays in terms of kind of art, but having the context, social and historical context, that you often get in ethnography yeah. museums. So, you know, you're trying to blend these different art historical and disciplinary schemes into what we hope is a kind of uplifting and bright and contemporary and elegant installation where you can really engage with the art in not, in not an over-mediated way, but really have a strong encounter with the art. And then there's the you know, the digital and the audio guides that we can kind of build in to enliven and animate...